Our scripture this morning, we're going to continue in the gospel of Mark again today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. You can find that printed in your bulletin. Many of you are probably counting down the minutes, maybe even right now, until March Madness begins again later this afternoon. Uh, Our annual kind of second Super Bowl every year, uh, the NCAA tournament. If you've been paying attention to March Madness, you know that there are probably five or six commercials that they play over and over and over again. Uh, One of them is for the Galaxy S7 phone, and it involves Lil Wayne, uh, who's Jim Story's favorite artist, I believe. It involves, involves, you've got it right here. (laughs) It involves Lil Wayne sitting on a couch looking through some kind of virtual reality goggles. And he pulls the goggles down and he says, Lil Wayne's fighting robots in outer space. And then he puts them back up. He says, Lil Wayne's sitting on the couch. And he pulls them back down and he says, Lil Wayne's canoeing with Wesley Snipes. And then he puts them back up. He's like, oh, Wesley Snipes has actually walked into the room. And I don't know how these virtual reality glasses work with your phone or how long it's going to be before Clary wears a pair to church one Sunday. I know it's, I know it's probably, you can just watch a different sermon instead of this one. <coughs> but I know that the general idea of, of virtual reality is that you try to, you know, it's that moment where you can escape from reality and go just kind of get away. Something pleasant, something exciting, something that brings you happiness in, in whatever way. And, and who doesn't want that every once in a while? But, but I'd suggest that as pleasant as it would be to escape from the reality that, that we deal with every day, what we really need, what would actually be more healthy for us in the long run, is for us to be able to see reality as it really is. For us to be able to see something of the spiritual reality that we can't see that exists behind the physical reality that we can see. To see something of that reality that we can't see with the naked eye. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Assyria sends an army of chariots and horses to surround the city where the prophet Elisha is. And Elisha's servant gets up early in the morning and he sees all these chariots and this army surrounding the city. And he runs and he wakes up Elisha and he tells him, man, we're in trouble. I don't know what we're going to do, but this is not good news. And Elisha looks at him and he says, it's going to be okay. There's more on our side than there are on their side. And then he prays that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes. And the text tells us, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They had been there the entire time, but they hadn't had the eyes to see this spiritual reality. I don't have any special glasses to give you this morning to help you see the unseen, but we do have the Bible. And what I want us to do this morning is to use the Bible to paint a picture for us to help us better see that unseen spiritual reality that's behind the seen physical reality. So that's what we're going to think about this morning, the unseen spiritual reality. Look with me, this is Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bernadres, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We pray for us. God, would you uh, give me aid this morning as, as I seek to, to delve into your wor- word and uh, apply it to our lives? Uh, Father, would you work through me and, and even over and above me? Would you work in our hearts? Would you work in those unseen places? Uh, would you hold back the evil one who would seek to come and to snatch away the word before it can take root in our hearts? Uh, God, would you be at work today? And would you use your word in our lives? We ask it uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I want to look at a, a couple of things this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to, to, to ask a question uh, by looking sort of broadly at the scriptures. And the first question is this. What do we see when we pull back the curtains and look at the unseen spiritual reality that's behind our physical reality. All right, and we're going to kind of look at this broadly from Scripture, and it's going to set us up for talking about this text in a minute. So, so what, what do we see when we pull back the curtains and try to look at the unseen 
spiritual reality behind the physical reality? Or another way to ask that question is, what does the Bible show us about spiritual reality? So let me start real broad, and then we'll, we'll narrow this down. Starting broadly, the scriptures teach that there is an unseen creator God who has made himself known at various times in various ways, but chiefly he has made himself known by taking on human flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are also unseen servants of this unseen creator God, known as angels. The word angels appears over 200 times in our English Standard Version of the Scriptures. Uh, Some of the angels have names like Gabriel and Michael. We're told that there are vast numbers of these angels who serve God as his attendants, who guard his sanctuary, who worship day and night. We're told that angels appeared to Abraham and to Lot and to Jacob. We read earlier of how they protected Elisha. Angels, we're told, rejoice when people come to faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 describes angels as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to receive salvation. That's all, that all sounds pretty cool. That's all good, right? However, in addition to the unseen creator God and the angels who serve him, there are also rebellious angels, angels who rebelled against God sometime prior to Adam and Eve's disobedience, uh, disobeying God in the Garden of Eden. In fact, the leader of these fallen angels, Satan, is the one who came and tempted and led Adam and Eve astray, led them to disobey God. Jesus calls Satan a liar and the father of lies. Satan and his demons are allied against God and his kingdom purposes. They're described in Daniel chapter 12 as having power over <coughs> as having power over nations even. We see them at times in scripture taking possession of individuals. We've seen that throughout the gospels as we've read through Mark. But you don't have to be possessed by a demon to be under the influence of Satan. Jesus calls Satan uh, the prince or the ruler of this world in John chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul speaks of the God of this age, Satan, blinding the mind of unbelievers, blinding the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that all of us were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So in the fall, when Adam and Eve disobey God, mankind essentially has aligned itself with Satan against God and remained under his influence Blinded to the reality of our situation. Uh, Yonami Park, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, I'm probably not, grew up in North Korea, and she says that like most children, she would sit in her father's lap as a child and, and he would read books to her, except the only books they had were published by the North Korean government, and they always had political themes, uh, sometimes the stories were set in this land called South Korea.
Korea, where all the children were homeless and had to go around begging for food in the streets in these stories. The books told stories about their great leader, Kim Jong-il, and his mystical powers. He was supposed to be able to control the weather. He had written over 1,500 books, and this legend of Kim Jong-il was reinforced in (coughs) movies and television shows and things like that. Uh, The textbooks that they were given had images of scary-looking American soldiers executing civilians. Sometimes at recess, they would set up a a doll dressed as an American soldier, and they would take turns stabbing the soldier. Uh, Math problems sometimes read like this. If you kill one American bastard and your comrade kills two, how many dead American bastards do you have? All right, there's some math for you. Uh, the, The North Korean regime did everything it could to blind the minds of the people who were living there. I want to suggest that the Bible paints a picture of a people, the human race even, whose minds have been blinded to the reality that is actually there. That we have, we've willingly rebelled against God, we have bought into the lies of Satan, and even now we're under his influence, although we may not even realize it. That the human race receives Satan's propaganda as if it were the real thing. It's what we know. It's the lie that we've been told. You can do life without God. You don't need him. You can live life fine without reference to God. His rules are oppressive. You don't have to obey those. Those are old-fashioned. There's there's no point in those. You won't die if you disobey God. In fact, you'll find more life if you go out and do your own thing. You can figure out what's good and true simply by using your own reason. You don't need revelation from an unseen God. God doesn't care about you. Just grab life by the horns and get what you can out of it while you can. Make your own best life. And so to narrow down this this picture of this unseen reality that, that the Bible paints, it's a picture of a people blinded, in captivity, and oblivious to their own condition. Now, let me say before I move on to the next point, Satan is quite happy for you to think that everything I said about angels and demons and people being blinded, he's happy for you to think that that's a bunch of pre-modern superstitious hooey. Um, C.S. Lewis once wrote, there are two equal but opposite eras into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both eras, and hell a magician or a materialist with the same delight. You know, one, one question we have when we approach the scriptures is, well, why don't we see this sort of demonic activity today that we did all through the Gospels in Jesus' day? And one possible answer to that question is that Jesus really has defeated Satan at the cross, and so even though Satan is not utterly destroyed. He has been bound in a sense. And so there's not that same level of activity that there once was. But another possibility is this. 
Uh, you still, and, and I still hear of demonic things going on from time to time, even in our own country. You hear of that in other countries as well at times, especially see it some, more in some countries than others. But I think here in our country, one reason there isn't more obvious demonic activity is, is because Satan is happy to have it like that. Because we are materialists by nature. We, 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 like, it's hard for us to believe in the supernatural. We've, we think there's a scientific explanation for everything. And Satan's happy to play that game with us. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it on the down low. And, and blind you to the, to the reality that there is a supernatural realm. I'm happy for you to function like there isn't one. And so he's, he's happy to kind of keep that on the down low in our type of culture. And so we don't see those kind of things. But, but in any event, the picture the Bible paints is of a blinded people in captivity, oblivious to their own condition. So then the second question is, how does, how does Jesus like enter into all this? What is, what is the coming of Christ that we're looking at in the Gospels? How does that factor into this? Um, basically, he shows up. He shows up. Acts 17, uh, Paul describes the days before Christ came as times of ignorance. Matthew chapter 4 we're told that with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a great light has dawned. And then Jesus begins to preach. Mark 1, which we read a few weeks ago, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 34, and he healed many who were sick <coughs> with various diseases and cast out many demons. The demons knew who he was. Mark chapter 3 that we just read, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Jesus in verse 14 appointed 12 apostles. And he says that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In Luke chapter 10, the disciples, 70 disciples are returning from successful ministry, preaching the gospel, casting out demons. And Jesus' Jesus's reaction is this. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's going down. And you guys are playing a part in this. But everybody's not fired up about this. Uh, in the text from this morning, the scribes, the religious leaders come down from Jerusalem to see what's going on. And they say in verse 22, he's possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he drives out demons. He's one of them. He's on Satan's side. And Jesus says, essentially, that's crazy. That's crazy. If, 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 I, how can I, if my work is opposed to the work of Satan, how can I actually be on his side? You think Satan's sending me to bring down his own house? That's crazy. No, I'm here, he says in verse 27, to enter the strong man's house and to tie him up 
and to plunder his house. Uh, Doug Kelly put it this way. He said, Satan has been keeping people in the dark and painful prison of unbelief and sin and certain judgment. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to tie up the jailer, to bind Satan, and to set the captives free. Let me read two verses to you that that you can kind of hear this in. Uh, One is from Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Then in John chapter 12, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you see why this week, when we remember the crucifixion and the resurrection is so important, through the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus has defeated Satan, and is setting the captives free. Now, I want to say three things about all that. Three, three kind of take-home points of application. Number one, believe the gospel. Number one, believe the gospel. The invitation to you this morning is that through faith, to believe that through faith in Jesus, that, that, that what he has done on the cross that through faith in that, your sins will be forgiven by the work of Christ at the cross. Uh, this passage, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but we tend to this, get to this passage and it kind of freaks us out because it talks about this unforgivable sin. But before Jesus says anything about this unforgivable, unforgivable sin, he says, all sins, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, it's assumed those who put their faith in Jesus, but all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, whatever blasphemies I've uttered, that you've uttered, will be forgiven through faith in Jesus. Not just the little sins, but the big ones. Not just the tame sins, but the blasphemous ones. Not just the sins your mama knows about, but the sins your mama doesn't know about. All sins will be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, the record of your law-breaking, the record of your debt, it's all been set aside because it's been nailed to the cross and Jesus has dealt with it there. He's paid the debt in full so that that record no longer stands between you and God and Satan can no longer trot that record out 
and accuse you of all those things any longer. Uh, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. We just say, Satan accuses me in vain. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it goes on to say, because I am owned a child because of what Jesus has done. Uh, another song we sing from time to time, it is well with my soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Whatever it is, you don't have to bear it any longer because through faith in Jesus, it has been taken care of at the cross. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. It's good news. The gospel is good news for whoever believes. Jesus goes on to say here, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and father or and mother. The will of God is that you would repent and believe the good news and sit at Jesus' feet and follow him. That's the will of God. And you can be a member of Jesus' very family. But Jesus doesn't warn us here, doesn't he? And we can't just completely skip over this, although we might want to. Um, and it's interesting, I think, that this warning is directed at the religious leaders. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, what's he saying here? There's, there's obviously, you can imagine there's been a lot of ink spilled talking about these verses. I don't think he's saying that the religious leaders have committed this sin yet. But they're getting close. And they need to be warned. See, the, the job of the Holy Spirit is to make known to us the saving work of Jesus Christ. And if you stubbornly resist what the Spirit is showing you about Jesus to the extent that you begin to treat Him as the source of evil and not as a source of salvation, if you keep resisting the Holy Spirit telling you that you're a sinner and that Jesus is the Savior that you need, if you keep digging your heels in saying, I'm not the problem, you're the problem. Then watch out. Watch out. This passage is talking about this defiant resistance to the Holy Spirit showing us our need of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And we're warned about it. Um, if, if you're worried, I, you know, I've talked to people time to time who worry that they might have committed this. If you're anxious about it, uh, don't be. If you're anxious about it, then you haven't committed it. Because if, if you were this person, you wouldn't be worried about whether you had done this. You would be that hardened. But, but, but let the warning have some effect. Hear it. To persist in this willful, deliberate rejection of the Holy Spirit pointing you to the saving work of Jesus can eventually leave you in a place that you can't get back from. And that's the warning of this passage. The call to you today then is if you are hearing the gospel, if the Holy Spirit is impressing the gospel on your heart, then don't walk out here without doing anything about that. Hear that message and believe that message and put your faith and your trust in Jesus today. 
Donald Miller, in his book, Blue Like Jazz, tells the story of uh, a group of Navy SEALs who had stormed into some place where hostages had been taken, and they're going in there to, to free the hostages, and they burst into the rooms, and the hostages are all tied up, and, and they're over in the corner, and the SEALs tell them, hey, we're Americans, we've come to rescue you, you just need to follow us out of the room. But the people were so petrified and scarred that they just stood over there, or sat and laid over there huddled, kind of with their eyes covered because they were just so frightened. And Miller writes that at first the, the SEALs didn't really know what to do, and then finally one of them had an idea, and this is what Miller says. He said he put down his weapon, took off his helmet, and curled up tightly next to one of the other hostages. Getting so close, his body was touching some of theirs. He softened the look on his face and put his arms around them. He was trying to show them he was one of them. None of the prison guards would have done this. He stayed there for a little while until some of the hostages started to look at him, finally meeting his eyes. The Navy SEAL whispered that they were Americans and were there to rescue them. Will you follow us, he said. The hero stood to his feet, and one of the hostages did the same. Then another, until all of them were willing to go. The story ends with all the hostages safe on an American aircraft carrier. And then he said this, When I understood that the decision to follow Jesus was very much like the decision the hostages had to make to follow their rescuer, I knew then that I needed to decide whether or not I would follow him. The decision was a simple one. I asked myself, is Jesus the Son of God? Are we being held captive in a world run by Satan, a world filled with brokenness? And do I believe that Jesus can rescue me from this condition? And the answer to the scripture is yes, he can. He has come to rescue you from this condition. And the call to you is to believe in what he has done to secure that rescue. Believe the gospel that Jesus has come to set the captives free. Uh, Secondly, so believe. Secondly, fight. Fight. Uh, We live in the tension of the already and the not yet. Satan has been bound, but he hasn't been destroyed. He's been defeated, but he's not been completely vanquished. He's still powerful. He still prowls around the scriptures, say, like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy. Ephesians 6 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, This already not yet that we live in has been described compared to the difference between D-Day and V-Day, V-Day during World War II. On D-Day, the Allied troops entered France. And from that day forward, the doom of the Third Reich was certain. It was coming down. There was no doubt about it. But it took months of fighting before the Nazis actually surrendered on V-Day. We live between the death and the resurrection of Christ, D-Day, 
And the day when Jesus comes back, the day. That's the already not yet that we live in. And, and, and here's what that means for us practically. It, this means that many of the problems in life that you and I face have a spiritual component to them. There is an enemy who is after us, who resists us. And look, sometimes, like it's not, it's not the, the spiritual indistinction from the physical, like the physical doesn't matter. Like sometimes it does matter how you eat and whether you're getting your exercise. And sometimes we have chemical things going on and we need medications. And, and there, there are physical realities of this world that we have to deal with. But don't overlook the spiritual reality. Don't overlook the spiritual battle that's going on in your life and in your heart and in your children's lives and in their hearts. Satan doesn't want you to grow. He doesn't want you to overcome sin. He doesn't want your children to thrive. And he's perfectly happy if we just kind of ignore the spiritual component to everything. He's perfectly happy if we think that Grace Presbyterian Church is going to be built simply through social media and being nice to our neighbors and hopefully some, some decent preaching. There's a, there's a spiritual battle component to all of these things. There's a spiritual battle in here, inside us, out there as we go into the world around us. And we've got to enter into that battle. We have to fight. Ephesians 6 tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, to take up the Word of God. We've got to know the Word of God. Our children have to know the Word of God. We have to get it into their hearts. If we don't, it's like taking somebody and say, here, go fight the battle, but I'm not going to give you a gun. I'm not going to give you any ammunition, but, but good luck out there. We've got to take up the sword of the Spirit, and we've got to pray. We've got to pray. We've got to intercede for one another. We've got to enter into the battle. You know, really, that's where the battle is fought. That's where this message that we hear on Sunday morning goes from being good, bad, or indifferent to actually life-changing. It's when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God because God's people have been at prayer. I mean, the, the power of this message week after week is tied up with the prayers of God's people. Our effectiveness in sharing the gospel is, is tied up with the prayers of God's people. Because this is a, a spiritual battle that we face. So believe the gospel and then fight. And then finally, go. Go. Uh, you've heard good news. You received good news because somebody brought good news to you. Will you take that good news to others? You've got a part to play in bringing light to the nations. You've got a part to play in setting captives free. Yonami Park and her mother eventually found someone who smuggled them out of North Korea to freedom. And she says that when this guy, he was, he was, a, he was a Protestant missionary, and who, who, who got them out, he got them to a certain point and he left them. And she writes, after we walked a few steps, my mother and I looked back and saw that he was on his knees on the frozen ground praying. And I wondered, why does this person who doesn't speak our language care so much that he is willing to risk his life for us?
you don't have to go to North Korea. You, you might be being called to go to North Korea. But there are people all around you who are in prison, who are in captivity, and you've got the key. You've got the light of the gospel. You've got the message that can set them free. Go. Go and make disciples. Go and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are not ignorant of the unseen. That we are not ignorant of Satan's devices and schemes. That we would be a people who are actively praying against him. Father, we do pray for a, a fresh binding of the strong man. We pray that souls would be liberated. That people would be brought from darkness to light. That people know the freedom of knowing Jesus and having their sins forgiven. We pray, Father, that, that we might be a part in taking that message to others. Um, that we would, see, we would see the things that are important and real and lasting in this life, and that we would be about those things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.